thought about what I need to speak about today, and I thought I need to instill in you, if you don't have this, the Christian virtue of being absolutely narrow-minded, okay? That's what I'm here to talk about today, is to make sure that you are the most narrow-minded people that you can possibly be when you leave today. Now, now of course, for the, for the secular world, that's not supposed to be a virtue, and of course, when I say narrow-minded, I mean it in a very specific biblical way. And I say this because you know and I know that trying to live the Christian life, a lot of things get in the way. They distract us from our real goal. Too many of us, and I, I put myself in this category, and I, I know talking to Chad, it's amazing that we live in a sinful world. We have to deal with the sin sinful world of the flesh, the devil, uh, all the junk that's in the world. And what does that do? It takes your mind and your focus off of the things that will last for eternity and the things about Jesus Christ, who is the one true way of salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. That is absolutely positively clear in the Scripture, John fourteen six. That's echoed by the apostles, where they say, There is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved, Jesus Christ. And of course, we go on and on. The Gospels tell us what? Is that there are two paths. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, There is a wide way that leads to destruction, and there is a narrow way that leads to life. And the fact is, is what does the devil want you to do? Take your mind off that narrow way. What, is, what do you do because you're unsure about your faith? You want to be more tolerant of other views. Well, I want to teach you to be intolerant as well as narrow-minded, okay? Yeah, all of those virtues that the culture hates but God loves. Why? Because we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ the author and perfecter of faith. And I want to give you today something that is absolutely important for you to know, and that is that when we talk about Jesus being the only way of salvation, you know, and I know, that this is one of the biggest questions that the detractors of Christianity have. Say, how can you guys be so narrow-minded, so exclusivistic, intolerant, and they add a bunch of adjectives to that, and you say, your answer is because it's right, it's true, it's biblical, and it's self-evident, and if you actually understood what the salvation was, you would understand that there can be no other way of salvation other than Jesus Christ himself. So what I'm going to do for you today is perform an absolute miracle. You didn't have to send money to my television station. Uh, you didn't have to, uh, you know, name it, claim it, do anything else. But I'm going to give you an entire systematic theology of the gospel in 45 minutes so you understand why Jesus Christ is the only possible way of salvation and that it will make sense to you why in the end. Because when you think about this, what are the common objections? And you know this, and that's why you, you don't go out with all boldness as those in the book of Acts did. And, you know, don't raise your hand and say you're not out there with boldness for Christ. We know why. Because you're uncertain about whether it's true. You're, you don't want to feel silly 
or stupid about it. That's why when we teach you about this, it's to give you that confidence and boldness so that you're not tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine. But you know, people will say to you, what? They'll say, you're arrogant if you think your way is the only way. And of course, what has arrogance got to do with being right? I mean, I'm right not because of of anything that I said or did. It's because God chose me and showed me his scriptures where he said, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and and the life. So what arrogance has to do with it, I have no idea, but that's a frequent accusation. And uh, of course, this is where, uh, as uh, Chad failed to mention, probably because half of you would leave, is that not only do I teach theology, but I teach law and I'm a lawyer. So, uh, you know, don't hold that against me. But when you consider this, uh, just remember that people, what you want to do is cross-examine people when they make statements like that. And not in any formal way, but people say, that's arrogant. Well, what do you mean by arrogant? Have them define it and have them apply it to you. And you find out all of a sudden the accusation goes by the wayside pretty quickly. Or how about this? Well, it's just not fair. How about all those people who have never heard about Jesus Christ? How many of you have heard that one before? Yeah. And you know what? What has fairness got to do with it? See, they falsely assume that people are going to hell and that they remain apart from God because they haven't heard the name of Jesus Christ or the gospel. That has absolutely nothing to do with it. Why are people separated from God? Because they have transgressed the law of God, because the wages of sin is death, because they're being punished for their sin. God is perfectly just, perfectly holy, and because salvation is a gift, God doesn't have to offer salvation to anyone. The fact that anybody is saved is amazing. God, should, God could have left every fallen human being in their state of sin, and God would still be perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly fair. So don't ever buy into that. That's like saying, uh, we look at you know, mass murderers on death row, and uh, they say, you know, gosh, that, that's just really sad. The only reason they're being put to death is because the governor hasn't granted them a pardon. Now, you think about that, say, that, that's ridiculous. The reason they're being put to death is because they committed a capital crime. And because God said in Genesis 9, 6, if you shed man's blood, by man your blood will be shed because he's in the image of God. That's why they're being put to death. That's why they're being permanently separated from the land of the living. It's not because the governor didn't give them a pardon. The governor doesn't owe anyone a pardon any more than the moral governor of the universe owes anyone a pardon. And that's why when we look at this, you should, we could, should come with bowed head, bended knee, knowing that what we deserve right now, you and me and everyone else, is to be screaming in hell right now. If you really understand the holiness of God and you acknowledge it, you say, that's what I deserve right now. The wages of sin is death. But what has God given us? He has given us a pardon. What has God given the unbeliever? He's given them a suspended sentence as far as the execution of the sentence and giving them time to live on his earth and breathe his air and live in the image of God the way they were supposed to be, even though they don't live for him. So the idea of unfairness for Jesus being the only way is just irrelevant. It has nothing to do with the question. Just as, how about this one? You know, it just doesn't make sense to me. And my answer to that is, well, add that to all the other things that don't make sense to you and that you're ignorant of, and guess what? This is just one more thing. 
And that's why, I'll tell you, being in the world of academia for two decades, you realize that the world of academia is just as corrupt as everywhere else, even Christian academia. Uh, They spend too much time doing what? Either spending time in irrelevancies or spending time trying to be patted on the head by the world so that the world will think that they're smart rather than the Christians getting together and saying, no, I'm going to be a fool for Christ. I don't care what the world says. And if they put me to death, if I don't get tenure, if I never get published in Harvard Theological Journal, I don't care. Because when I stand before Jesus Christ, I want him to say to me, because I will have to stand there by myself, all alone, in front of his judgment seat, and I want to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what you should be focusing on right now and for the rest of your life and order everything underneath that goal, that you will please your master, the one true and living God and his son, Jesus Christ. So... When we look at this, why Jesus is the only way of salvation and why it only possibly makes sense, think about this. What is salvation? What are you trying to accomplish? See, that's the question. See, Jesus Christ came as as God incarnate. He lived a perfect life. And then what did he do? He paid the price for our sin, rose from the dead, and anyone who receives him, Anyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But yet he says, what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, why is that? Well, look at the goal of salvation. The goal of salvation is clear. It is forgiveness and reconciliation of a broken friendship between God and man. That's what salvation is. And if you misdefine it, if you misdirect it, if you leave any of that part out, what are you going to get? You're going to get a false way to salvation as well. Let me give you some examples. In pantheism, now what's pantheism? It's not the Disney heresy that Peter Pan is God, okay? That's not it. Pantheism is a view that means everything is God, and about a third of the world are pantheists. They believe all is divine. And you can always tell who they are because they sit in lotus position like this, right? Those are the people who think everything is God. And a few people on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal who think the Delta smelt is God and everything else, so we don't want to harm it. So as you consider this, see, what is salvation in Eastern religion? And again, my bachelor's degree is in comparative religion and ethics. I can save you a whole undergraduate bachelor's degree in the subject. Uh, Pantheism believes all is God. So what's salvation? Here's what it is. Realizing your Godhood. Because if everything is God, what does that make you? God. What's the problem? You all forgot you were God. So what's salvation? Remembering. You just need to remember your God. Well, I mean, excuse me, but how does an omniscient being forget he's God? Does that make any sense to you? Why do people who are pantheists worship? If there's only one thing that exists, divine being, who are you worshiping? To be consistent with that idea, what do you have to do? Turn, look in the mirror, and start singing to yourself, how great thou art, because you're already God. There are so many problems intellectually and every other way with pantheism. That's why we reject it. But a third of the world believes it. 
And how do you remember your God? Chanting all sorts of things to what? To try and get self-realization. Look out for that word, self-realization. That's his, uh, a step into Hinduism. All right, that's enough. What's salvation and atheism? Salvation and atheism is, is, is nothing, okay? It's uh, do whatever you want, get free from the Christian and moralistic ethic that's ruining your life to be able to do anything that you want to do anytime that you want to do it, okay? The true atheist, if they really follow what they believe, what would their version of morality be? Who would their moral heroes be? Answer, the sociopath. Because if there is no morality and it's all relative and all you are are a bunch of protons, neutrons, and electrons that accidentally rammed together a few billion years ago and we're just dust in the wind blowing off each other, who cares about anything? It's all an illusion. I mean, everything from trees, God, babies, everything else is just different. There is no good, better, best. But is there any atheist who lives consistently with that? None. They all want to talk about, you Christians got to stop cramming your religion down our throat. And your answer is, why should we care what you think? You think everything is accidentally rammed together particles, which means good, better, best is in that category as well. So what's salvation? Free from morality, but they can't get free from it and don't live consistently with it. That's the problem. And, of course, why? Because Romans 2 tells us, and you know this, that God wrote the law on our hearts. We know it. You know you have a conscience. That's why you're here today, so you can deal with your, what, your conscience bearing witness that you haven't kept the law of God perfectly. I haven't. You haven't. Uh, nobody has. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only thing that makes sense for salvation This is the problem. I can give you version after version after version of uh, what salvation is. What's salvation in Islam? Islam is not to get forgiveness and reconciliation to have a friendship with Allah. It's merely to escape the wrath of God. But that's like being released from jail but never actually reconciling with the one you have a broken friendship with. That's all they want. So what do they have? Works righteousness. What do you get in, uh, in Mormonism? Salvation is becoming God. So if you're good enough, you're smart enough, doggone it, the gods love you, you can get exalted to godhood. It goes on and on and on, the false views. But if forgiveness and reconciliation is the goal of salvation, which it is, then you know there's only one way to do that. How do you know? Common sense and life experience And then we find out this perfectly matches what God has done. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean this. If you have a broken relationship, and by the way, here's your counseling, marriage and family ministry, and everything you could ever understand. If you have a broken relationship and you have sinned against someone and you've harmed that relationship, what do you need to do to restore it? You can all say it. Repent. You all know what's right. You all know you need to teach, treat people with love, respect, kindness, and honor. Because if you don't, you will not have eHarmony.com with that person. You will not have 29 dimensions of compatibility. And the two of you will not walk as one. You will be in conflict. 
So if you're the offensive, sinful one, and, and you can all metaphorically raise your hand, you've offended someone in your life, how do you reconcile with them? Repent, confess your sin, and then go to them and want to reconcile. What is it going to take for the other party to reconcile with you? They need to be willing to bear the consequence of your sin and not hold it against you. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness is not forgetting. God doesn't forget. God's omniscient. He can't forget our sins. So the idea that he doesn't remember them against us, that would be a contradiction in the Bible. That's not it. What he doesn't do is he doesn't hold it against us any longer when we repent. So when you consider this, it's very simple. If I offend my wife, what do I need to do? Repent. What does she need to do? Be willing to bear the harm that I cause to the relationship. She satisfies the debt for me by bearing the harm. And then if she's willing to take me back, but what do I need to do to walk together with her? Confess my sin and want to walk together in righteousness again. The two to walk together is one. And when that happens, back to eHarmony.com, right? But see, what you've got right there in all restored friendships is what needed to take place with God and our broken relationship. And this is how it works, okay? Uh, When we look at the purpose of life, Okay, this is important because now I want, to, I want to walk you through the scriptural argument and how this is supposed to work. What are we designed to be? We're designed to be imitators of God. God says in Genesis 1.26, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God made us enough like himself to be able to enjoy fellowship with him, to worship him, to honor him, and to enjoy that love relationship in some minor way that we see in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have from all eternity past and will for all eternity future enjoy an internal, honorable, righteous, loving relationship with each other. Now, When God makes us in his image, how does he make us? He doesn't make us to sit there and be loners. God, what's the first thing God did? He made man male and female. He made the family and had what? The first wedding, children. And so when we see this designed fellowship, the functional image of God is to live in righteous fellowship. That's it. That's the design of life. So it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for woman to be alone. Uh, We are designed to have good marriages. So if you're not having one, one or both of you need to repent, okay? Don't look. Don't look at each other. Okay, good. That'll give it away. So, so you see, you know it because I saw some of you start to turn a little bit. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, well, just don't, the other, let the Holy Spirit work on the other person. You work on yourself, okay? Uh, insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So just repent for yourself. Uh, so God made us enough like himself to do that. And by the way, when we think in other world religions, what does it mean to be an imitator of God? Because whoever your God is and you want to imitate, you'll become like him. You know, if, you, if, you're, if it's polytheism, what are you trying to do? If there's a whole bunch of really powerful beings, what do you want to do? Become one. That's why polytheism is most often connected with the magic worldview and sorcery and witchcraft, which is to do what? 
I mean, rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. Why? Because you don't have to repent. What do you have to do? Seek the secret power so you can be just as powerful over the world, over your friends, over your enemies, over everything else. You can become the powerful one. Not submit to God and do what he wants you to do. You can be your own God. You can be like God, knowing good and evil, and have the power to control your life. So, but when you think about even close views like Unitarianism, how about a God that's only one person? Think about that as opposed to three persons. What has that God been doing for all eternity? Answer, sitting by himself with his proverbial hand on his chin, thinking important thoughts. And that is the perfect model of existence. So is it any wonder when you look at the, you know, the quote, the liberals, modernist or liberal Christianity, which became Unitarian, what did they value? Knowledge. See, if you can go and, and have patches on your elbows and a bow tie, and uh, the person who can go out and be the smartest person is the best Christian. But what does Jesus say? By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you can explain the metaphysics of the Trinity, right? So, no, that you have love for one another, that you have this humble, self-sacrificial, God-honoring love for one another, and you live in harmony with one another. That is the mark of someone who is following in the footsteps of the Trinity. Now, that doesn't mean that you, you, can be, uh, you don't have to love God with your mind anymore. No, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. But what's going to be predominant in your relationships? Love, 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 that you care about the other person, that you, you want to raise them up, that you want to benefit them, that you want to please them and make them happy for all the right godly reasons, that you care about their happiness. So when you ask that, and I, I say this because, look, the church has the biggest problem. Is our biggest problems are unbelief and broken marriages. The other one is people who are still trying to get what they already have. And what I mean by that is Jesus Christ died for your sins once for all. You cannot earn it. If you're a Christian, stop trying to earn it by your good works. It's not going to happen. Just be an obedient child, do the best you can, and live for God. But when we think about these broken marriages, I, I can say it's that because you don't love each other. And you've got to really pray that you're going to live in the image of God, and not just that we can be reconciled to God, but guess what? Be reconciled to each other. If you don't love your wife, you don't love your husband, you don't love your kids, you need to repent right now and don't leave the building today until you've done your business with God because he wants you to do it and you know you have to do it. So and don't start looking around or look down, okay? It's a dead giveaway, okay? So, and why do I say this? Because I've been doing ministry for almost 25 years, and I, I know the problems in the church. And it's the same stuff I have to guard against, every pastor has to guard against. We have to constantly be mindful of this because of the distractions of the world. Be narrow-minded in love for your wife or husband and your kids and for God. And guess what? You think if you're stagnant in your life right now, guess what's going to get it started again? Absolute commitment to God and love for one another and God. And if you're not doing that, well, you know the answer to that. Okay, good. So, so that is the, uh, the beginning of this when we think about what God expects for us. But we're to mirror the intra-Trinitarian love relationship. And how do we see this? We know what the, the requirements are. Leviticus 11.44, the requirement is be holy for I am holy. There it is. Be holy. 
100% of the time. That's your job. What happens if you break the law? What happens if you're not holy? 1 John 3, 4, sin is transgression of the law. But sin is a lack of holiness. You can't walk together as one without holiness. So what's the wages of sin? Death. You all know that. What is death? It is a separation that results in a cessation of activity. You will, if you are unholy, what's going to happen? You will lose the intimate relationship that you have with God and your fellow man. You'll be dead to that. There will be none of that intimate loving activity going on if you act in an unholy way. Will your carcass be alive? Will your soul still be active? Yeah, but you won't have the activity of life. That's important. So what, do you need? so what happens, though, when you break the law? You're separated from God. What happens when you sin against each other? You, you lose intimacy. In fact, the description of the saved Christians, okay? Ephesians 2.1, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. They weren't physically dead. They were spiritually dead. They didn't enjoy the intimacy with God that they ought to have. Now, here's an issue. Now, now, all of this, I hope, makes sense to you. This is the way relationships work. If you are made for holiness, you know what makes for a good relationship, and you know what makes for a bad relationship and what causes separation. The question becomes, is this necessary? Does God absolutely have to separate from sin? Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 34, Verse 7. We're going to go through a couple of passages here. And I want to give you the argument here for the, the absolute necessity of divine justice. Based on the nature of God, get, God can't do otherwise other than to turn away from sin and not have fellowship with sin. And in Exodus 34, we see just that. We're going to look at two passages. But I think it's, it's as clear as it gets. Exodus 34, starting with verse 5, it says, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him. As he called upon the name of the Lord, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgressions and sin, yet... He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And what's the appropriate response? Verse 8. And Moses made haste to bow down towards the earth and worship. Is that your response to the holiness of God? Do you make haste to bow down? Now, now bow down is an external symbol of what's going on in your heart that you, sub, you are submissive to God. You recognize the greatness of God and the majesty of God in your life and who you are as God's creature and hopefully as God's servant and child. You bow down willingly and joyfully to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. Are you resisting that? My advice to you is stop it! Okay, good. So... That's the one thing you'll remember from this message. The guy yelled, stop it, right? Okay. But, but truly, I say that because we need constant reminders. 
to bow down, to worship. And it's only going to happen if you constantly set God before you in his goodness and his holiness and his eternity. And when that is true, what is worship all about? Do you think worship uh, actually just strokes God's ego so, so he feels good about himself? Now, worship is for us, not for God. Why? Because what's the basic problem with the universe? It's this. The creatures are in rebellion. They don't submit to the proper authority, God, their creator. What does worship do? The basic Greek word in the New Testament is proskuneto. It means to kneel down or bow down. When you are in any activity that acknowledges God as great and majestic and holy and you in an act of submission to him, that's an act of worship. And guess what? When that occurs, the universe is in harmony, at least for you and God. So that's the basic problem, rebellion. And God can do what? Since he is immutably holy, he cannot change. What's going to be the result of that? Look at Habakkuk 1.13. Habakkuk 1.13, you're going, oh man, he cited one of those books in the Minor Prophets. I know it's in the Old Testament somewhere. Uh, yes, Habakkuk, uh, keep looking. If you have the uh, New American Standard, uh, you know, it's page 987 in the Cambridge uh, Wide Edition. No, never mind. So in Habakkuk, which is right next to adverbs, for those of you still flipping for it, you keep, which is the other side is Hezekiah. So in case you're, you're missing it here. By the way, there's no adverbs or Hezekiah. I, I, I have to say this stuff because eventually someone will come afterwards and say, and this has happened before, say, I, I couldn't find the book of adverbs in there. My, my Bible didn't have it. So, all right, so you got that. All right, Habakkuk 1.12, and we want to cross-reference that with uh, the Exodus 34 passage we just read. Habakkuk 1.12, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. Thou, O Lord, thou, o Lord has appointed them to judge, and thou, O Rock, has established them to correct. Verse 13, the key here. Thine eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. And then he goes on to say, why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Of course, that's the cry of the people in the land. And he doesn't look with favor on it. This is just an illustration of God's long suffering. That's all that's being illustrated here, that he doesn't immediately give full retribution for sin. Amen. Amen, uh, that there's a period of grace and a period of mercy. But, but look on that. Why is it that God cannot look on wickedness with favor? The absolute necessity of divine justice and separated, separation from God. Here's why, and it's pretty simple. Because for God to approve evil as an immutable holy being, he would have to be evil. For God to look at hugging a baby and murdering the baby the same way, and approve of it, God would have to be both good and evil. Now, you think about that. That's exactly the... And, and here's a, just a good illustration. You, if you're a born-again Christian here today, that you have a, you're regenerated, you have a new heart, you have the Holy Spirit, and you're made in the image of God, you have a conscience. The law of God is written in your heart. Of all people on earth, you have the best moral compass, okay? And... When you consider why God cannot look upon sin with favor, think about this. If you came across someone 
who decided to torture babies for fun. You came across someone who was just literally just poking a baby with hot pokers. What, what would that do to you? You'd be repulsed by it. When I was clerking at the California Court of Appeals during law school, uh, this is one of the things. I came across a baby murder case that I was working on. I was drafting the opinion for the justice I was working for. And it was essentially, it was a drug rehab guy who took a baby and basically got tired of him crying and just slammed him on a concrete floor and killed him. Now, you gasped at the right place because nobody, it's self-evident that that is an inherently evil act and anyone in the image of God who hasn't seared their conscience is naturally repulsed by that. Could you ever look approvingly on that with your moral compass set straight? And the answer is to say no, no. How much more the eternal, immutable, infinite, perfect, holy being God could ever look upon any sin and not be repulsed by it? He must punish sin. There must be justice. There must be satisfaction. And what are the results? The results are bad when you sin. James 2.10 says, If you keep the whole law yet stumble at one point, you are guilty of all. You've transgressed God's law. You stand before God's bar of justice guilty. You're alienated from God. Colossians 1.21, it says that we are fallen, we're alienated from God. And, of course, we're corrupt in the heart. Fallen man is. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart of man is evil and incurably sick. Who can understand it? Claim that, right? Guilty, alienated, corrupted. And what can you do about it? Absolutely nothing. But who can? God. See, that's the, by the way, that's all the bad news, okay? Okay, end of sermon. We leave you depressed, going home, right? Okay, no, we don't want to do that. After the bad news comes, you're lost in sin with, with an infinite debt, and you're going to be sent to hell for all eternity, and you rightly deserve it. That's the bad news. What's the good news? The good news is, even though we ourselves cannot do the work of salvation, God was willing to bear the consequences of our sin. And anyone who comes to him, guess what? You will have your sins forgiven, and he will not hold it against you. And by the way, for any of you who, again, want to think about the issue of the law and Christianity, uh, one of my areas of research uh, as a professor is the area of nomology or law from the Greek word nomos. And this is important. The concepts of law and justice are virtually missing from modern evangelical Christianity. It's all about grace, dude. No, I'll tell you, there's a lot more justice that God has than grace. And we're told to be just as well as gracious. In fact, you want to compare the two? Um, God is 100% just. Is every sin punished? Yes. Either people will be punished for their own sins or sins are vicariously or punished in a substitutionary way in Jesus Christ. That's 100% justice. 100% retribution. How many people find grace and mercy? The way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't always be ready to extend grace, but God also wants us to be just. And that's part of your discipleship training is to learn how to balance those two and when to appropriately, appropriately do it because injustice is bad. Remember that. 
Uh, uh, same thing with a lack of grace is a bad thing for Christians. And if you want to be imitators of God, guess what? Imitate God. Do what is right, do what is just, and make sure that you're gracious. gracious. But why is it that law can't save? And again, we're back to why is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? A, because we've offended God and we're separated from God. Our hearts are bad and we're guilty before God's bar of justice. So since there's only one true God and we can't do it by the works of the law, how do we know that? Romans 4.15 says the law brings about wrath. Galatians 2.21, Paul says, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Okay? You know this. Why is that so? Very simple. Uh, I, I make sure I say this every time I come here and preach because it is so crucial. Because every world religion teaches a false view of salvation that somehow you can be saved by your works. But let me give you the reason why. Why is it that the law brings about wrath and that if Christ, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly? Why is it we can't be saved by works? It's this reason. It's the same reason when you think about the law of covenant community or covenant relationships, that the only way for you to maintain a perfect relationship in righteousness and holiness is to do what? Keep all the law all the time. Now, here's two examples. Let's say that you have a good relationship with your wife or husband, and then one time you go in and you, you know, say, you know, honey, you're really ugly today. Your cooking stinks. You smell bad. And, you know, you, uh, you, let's say you start abusing her physically. And then you come back later and say, hi, honey, how about a big hug? Well, what is she doing? She's really upset at you. You're saying, you're, you can't be upset at me. I took out the trash. I'm like, yeah, hopefully you should be scratching your head on that one. You're going, yeah, it makes sense to me. No, it doesn't make sense. Okay. Why? Because doing what you were supposed to do in the first place does not pay for the sins that you are committing. Just like if you were late for church today and you decided, eh, there's a red light. I'm going to be late. Better run the red light. Now, and then you get pulled over, get a ticket, go before the judge. And then you go before the judge and say, you know, Your Honor, I shouldn't have to pay the fine. Well, why is that? Because right before I went through the red light, I went through 10 green ones. And right after that, I went through 10 green ones. You've got to understand, Your Honor, I have a 10 to 1 ratio of of, of green lights to red lights. So you've got to see how righteous that is. I've got so many good works built up. Look at what I did. And that's when the judge says, would you like to enter an insanity plea at this moment? Because you know that's not the way law works. For you to maintain full participation in this community we call the state, what do you have to do? Keep all the law all the time. Otherwise, you, you, you get your privileges reduced. You have to be nice to people and treat them honorably all the time or your intimacy and your privileges of the relationship are reduced. One sin is sufficient for, to break a perfect relationship. That's why if you break the law once, the effect is the same. You have a broken relationship that needs to be restored. And that's the logic behind it. But that's why you can't sit there and say, I took out the trash. I help Aunt Matilda, uh, you know, take her groceries in. I help the little old lady across the street. That's the stuff you're supposed to do all the time. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's what you're supposed to be doing. 
So don't offer what you were supposed to be doing in the first place to pay for the stuff that you broke. Now, like I said, that's, that's the hard part. Now, so where does this leave you with? The one that you've offended, God, is perfectly just and naturally repulsed by us. So how are we ever going to get saved? And the answer is Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. That's how you get saved. There is only one way of salvation because there's only one true and living God, and the goal is forgiveness and reconciliation to him. And what does he need to do to forgive us? He must be just. So what does he do? He chooses to bear our burden, our sin burden. And what is our burden? Physical and spiritual death. And by the way, this answers the question that uh, medieval theologians and philosophers were asking, asking, in particular Anselm of Canterbury in the 12th century. And the question was, why did God become a man? Why was it necessary? And the answer was, is because God must punish sin, but if he's going to pay for it, what's the punishment for sin? Spiritual and physical death. So if God is the offended party, then God has to be the one bearing the burden. But he doesn't have a nature by which he can bear the burden for us. So what does he need to do? Become a man without ceasing to be God. And what do you have? Christmas. The conception and birth of the God-man, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who did what? He said, I came, Matthew 20, 28, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. All through the scriptures, from Isaiah 53, it says, The Lord laid our iniquity on him, that he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and by his stripes we're healed. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus Christ is the substitute. He's God himself, the offended party, the only one that can choose to bear the consequences of sin because he's the offended party. I hope that's clear to you. That's why there's only one way, and that's God's way, the one true and living God. So now that he bears the sin, what's left? And I want you to get this because if you are, I talk to a lot of people about this and they're Christians who still feel condemned by God. Stop it, okay? I know it's good counsel. That's why I was, they didn't make me a counselor, okay? I feel sad. Stop it, okay? Doesn't work real well, but that's why God gives other people for counseling. But I say this, but if he has taken your penalty and you are free from that penalty, what does that mean? You are no longer condemned before the law of God. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now, get the word there, now, now, okay? Meaning all you can do even when you sin, past, present, and future, God has forgiven you of your sins, all you can do is weep with joy and say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And appreciate the, the grace of God and what it cost him to do that. So when you think about it, you're guilty, you're alienated, and you're corrupted. And what does God do so we can have eternal e-harmony again? 
It's actually pretty simple. He bears the burden. What do you need to do to receive it? You know what? What do you need to do to walk with your other friends again? You need to repent. Mark 1.15, the time has come, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What is repentance? The Greek word there, metanoia or metanoeo, means to change your mind. You are thinking wrongly about righteousness. You need to change your mind and think rightly and love the law of the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love it, want it, and seek it. That's what you have to do. And guess what? Once you've repented of your ways, you have rejected what is evil and, and want and accept what is good, what's going to be the result? You have confessed with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What is confession? The basic word there, homologeo, means to be in agreement with God. God says we're sinners and we ought to be righteous. Guess what you need to do? Change your mind and do what? Say, I'm a sinner and I want to be righteous and and hold up the righteousness and the holiness of God. Be holy for I am holy. Do you love the law of the Lord in your heart? Do you want the goodness, the loving kindness, the joy that comes from good relationships between you and God? You need to repent. You need to not only... You know, not only say to want holiness, but seek it, but not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's work on your part. That means you need to study the scriptures. You need to constantly confront your false beliefs that you hold about what is righteous and what is true and what is meaningful in this life. And if you do, you will grow as a Christian. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. That is what we're called to do in in Jesus' high priestly prayer, to be sanctified in his truth. Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you're in bondage right now, if you're not living the Christian life that you think you ought to live, it's usually because you're not seeking God, you don't want God enough, you're, you're happy in your sin. You're too comfortable where you're at. Get out of the comfort zone and say, God, whatever you want me to change, today is the day. I want your spirit to come upon me in full measure. I will decrease. You will increase. God, make me like Jesus Christ, conform to his image. Do you really want that? You've got to want it. And that means you're going to seek it. And it starts with truth. You've got to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by word and spirit. But seek it with all your heart. Now, once... You've repented and you've confessed. You're in agreement with God. What do you need to do? God's sitting there with open arms. You just need to trust the offer. If your wife or husband's sitting there with open arms, what are you going to do? I'm not kind of sure. He might have a frying pan behind his back or something, right? No, you trust the offer is genuine for forgiveness and reconciliation. And this is what we see 200 times plus in the New Testament. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That is it. I mean, by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should both. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 16.31. It just goes on and on and on. Faith alone. Trust what God has done and you will be confident. And what are the results? 
We're saved not by deeds done in righteousness, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, God has given you a new heart. He's made you a new creation as Christ. Walk as a new creation. He's also declared you not guilty. We are justified by faith. You're justified before God. You're declared legally righteous before God. And as many, the the big one here, and this is important, regeneration, God's given you a new heart. Justification, God's declared you not guilty. You can walk out of the court free, out of the shackles. But what is important for us is John 1.12. As many as received him, to them they gave the right to become children of God. We're adopted as children of God. God is our Abba. He's our daddy. He is the perfect, loving father. The one maybe we didn't have, the one we hope we have. But guess what? God takes us and he will make us the people that we ought to be. How? Simply by his own grace. So when we look at what salvation is, to to wrap this up here, this is why Jesus Christ and he his, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and by faith alone in him is the only possible way of salvation. There's one true and living God. God's the offended party. God must punish sin. But God is just and the justifier. I'll close with this. Turn to Romans chapter 3, and this will put it all together for you so you understand that God is just and the justifier. And hopefully, maybe, of course, with Chad's preaching, I hope you do understand this. Uh, But if not, remember that only the offended party can forgive sin, but he must be righteous. So how is he going to do that? Romans 3.19. For we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and the whole world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a satisfaction or propitiation in his blood through faith. This was demonstrated uh, to his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Where then is boasting? Is it, it is excluded by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That is it, the just and the justifier. God must punish sin, but he bore it himself, and he's sitting there waiting with open arms for anybody who wants him. Not only for people who are not children of God, and if you're not sure today whether you are a child of God, now is the time to stop pretending. Now is the time to listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and to say, now is the time to give my 100% to the God with whom I'm going to meet at some point after death, and hopefully I'll spend all eternity with him or all eternity apart from him. Now is the time to think eternally. One true God, one true God incarnate, one way of forgiving sins. He bears the burden, and then he opens his arms and says, come. 
are we doing that? And I hope as believers as well that you will spend your life for the rest of your life not only the one way of salvation but the one way of sanctification as well.